Good morning, good morning. Glad you're here. Glad to be here with you. Amazing just to hear us singing together. And then an amazing privilege to be here to open up God's Word together. So, we do believe that the Bible is God's Word and that He promises to use it by His Holy Spirit to change our lives. So that's uh, why we're here, is to just get to know Christ better and therefore make Him known, finding our full joy in Him. We are starting this week a new series in 1 John. And so we will spend 11 weeks looking at the book of 1 John together. And I am looking forward to that. Today we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 1 where we are basically in what's called the preface, the prologue, the kind of the beginning, setting the stage for where we are headed. So what I want to do is I want to read 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That's as far as we'll get today. And uh, then I'll pray. And then we'll spend some time together. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you. Please feel free to to snag that. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There are some giveaway Bibles in the fellowship coffee room. So make sure that you uh, take those if you need one. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Word of God says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. This life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that all of our joy may be complete, mature, or full. Let me pray for us. Father, we just ask that you would come in significant power in this moment. And we trust that Your power is one of love. And I ask that Your power would be shown for those who feel hopeless, that hope would arise in the heart. For those who just feel beaten down, they would know the power of Your gentle love of Your patience, of Your comfort, of Your presence. I ask for those who are destroying their lives to find the power of the cross, of forgiveness, of a changed heart, to be right before their eyes, that they would turn from sin and run to Christ. Father, I ask that in these moments You would do a special work of change, And that You would help us to see Jesus like we've maybe never seen Him. Grow to love Him in ways that we've never loved Him. And make Him known with a courage and a boldness. Because You are who You say You are. And so now, teach us. Teach us. We are young. We are immature in the mind. We need You to awaken us. And to give us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just a 
brief disclaimer. I don't know if you were here for the testimony that Hunter gave. If anyone in the room is 18, I just want to let you know that you're not stupid. You're, you're just not as wise as you might be one day. Okay, so we want you to know if you're 18 and under, we love you and we're glad you're here. So just in case, that's what Hunter meant when he was talking. I just want to make sure that you knew that. Now, we are, we are a group of people called humans, and every one of us search for joy. Every one of us. Take some of the most tragic circumstances on our planet, from murder to suicide. Both have been all over the news. And ultimately, those things happen, even as tragic as they are, as a pursuit of joy. The murderer is either doing it to preserve their own life and to get their own joy, some type of maybe even revenge. The one who is in suicide is just a sense of relief. Ultimately, every pursuit is a pursuit of a sense of deeper satisfaction, joy, and purpose. Let's take some more trivial things. We find joy in a lot of things. And it's actually good. We find joy in the beauty of creation. We find joy that our clothes might not always have holes in them. Or we find joy that we have a coat in the winter. We find joy in watching a movie with a friend. We find joy, some of you have experienced this yourself or you've seen it, in the ice bucket challenge, right? It is ultimately a joy found in promoting a cause that would really benefit people. Do you know that that's where joy comes from? Really, is, is when you seek to serve and do good to others. And then, of course, you have the ice bucket challenge where people dump water on their heads in order to make uh, this horrible disease of ALS known and to raise some support for it. I don't know if you've seen on, in the blog world or on YouTube where they have a, a video, the 22 ways not to do the ice bucket challenge. And most of them are summarized by people where the, where the bucket itself, no matter the texture or size, slips out of the hands and smacks people all over the place. And it is kind of funny and also painful and sad all at one moment. But when you think about these things, laughter is a good thing. We love it. Every one of us are on a quest for joy. Every one of us. And what the Christian worldview, what the Bible begins to tell us is, all of these things that I've mentioned are secondary pleasures. That without a primary pleasure, you make secondary things primary things and it corrodes your heart. It never delivers. The lever of joy has to be pushed harder in order for it to produce something. The images have to be more graphic. The video games have to be a little better, newer. The clothes have to be newer. We're not fine with what we have. All of a sudden, things aren't enough for us. You know why? We were created for a better joy. We were created to know and to draw near to and to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. To know Him. And then, when primary pleasures, that is Jesus, when He's primary, everything else gets a better perspective and secondary pleasures are more enjoyable, not less. Christian worldview is not stop being happy. It is actually pursue it ultimately in Christ. And that is what John is saying he is writing for. If you look at the last verse, verse 4, he's saying, I'm writing this letter to 
these group of churches. He is actually addressing um, probably the church in Ephesus, which is in eastern Turkey. And um, actually, Western Turkey, sorry, uh, in Western Turkey. And he's writing at least to that church, if not the surrounding churches. And he's saying, verse 4, we're writing these things to you so that your joy may be full, complete, that it might mature. Don't settle for half joys and fleeting pleasures. Settle for a complete one, a full joy. And so in the text... What we see is John's aim is that we would be joyful. Now, we're going to find it in three ways, three main points that we're going to go through that he begins to kind of unfold for us that ultimately joy will be found as we know Jesus. And so the three main things that we're going to go over today, one is a big word called the incarnation. That is when God comes to humanity. When God comes down Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ comes to us and we need to know this Christ and find hope in who He is. So we have the incarnation. It tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man and He has come to us that we might know God. Number two is that He came to us that we might have fellowship. The second main idea is fellowship. We would have fellowship with God. Our sin keeps us away from God. He comes so that sinners might be brought near to God, might have fellowship with God, and ultimately it makes fellowship with one another make sense. And then lastly, when you know Jesus and you're in fellowship with Him, it's for your joy. In Him is our fullness of joy. So, That's the 30,000 foot view. Really quickly, know Jesus, who is both God and man. When you know Him, He is powerful enough to save you and to bring bring you in fellowship with Him. And when you're in fellowship with Him, joy abounds. So, that's the aim. That's where we're headed. Now, who is this John guy? This John guy, 1 John, he also wrote a gospel. He is called, in other portions of the Scriptures, he's called the Beloved Disciple. Jesus had 12 apostles and He had many different people that followed Him. But there was also an inner group of three that were closest to Him. Peter, James, and John. John was one of those He was called the beloved disciple. And it was John who writes this letter to us around the time post-Nero into the time of Domitian, around the end of 80 to 90 A.D., And he writes this letter highlighting kind of three main themes. Now, as we read the book of 1 John, you'll begin to see that he writes more like my mind works and thinks, which is not very linear at all. Do you have a random mind? Well, mine is random too. And so his is not completely random, but it's... He'll talk about a subject, and then he'll go to a totally different subject, and he's not relating the two. And then he goes to a different subject, and he's not relating... And then he jumps back to the first subject. It's kind of like a symphony. If any of you are familiar with uh, complex symphonic works, what you do is you have an orchestra will play a part at the beginning, and then not go to it for several other periods. And then all of a sudden, you hear that same first beginning part again. And this is what John is doing. He's not very linear. He's circular. So if you feel like, hey, that sounds like a new subject, it probably is. And then if you're like, hey, I thought I heard that, read that before, then you probably did. And that's kind of how it works with John. So as he's writing these things, he's communicating three main ideas. 
three main ideas. And ultimately, I've summarized it in the title of the series entitled Confidence in Love. He wants the people of God to have confidence, assurance in their relationship with God. Unlike many other religions, Christianity says you can be sure and confident that you are a child. Because a relationship with Jesus is not built upon what you can do for Him, but what He has done for you. All other religions have at the foundational base, your action gives you a sense of whether you're His or not. It's reversed for Christianity. It is His action for you and your trust in Him that gives you a relationship. And out of that relationship, you love. The love is the fruit. It's not the root of why you are saved. Now, he communicates these three ideas, main ideas of he just wants the people of God to have healthy teaching, healthy, sound teaching. He wants the people of God to be obedient and loving in their living. So to have obedience to Christ and love is their aim as they live. And then a passionate, consistent pursuit of Jesus. Not just doing, but abiding in Him and knowing Him. Because as you know Him, you can only love because He first loves you. That's a quote from 1 John. And so John lays these things out for us that we must remember. We must remember that we can have confidence in Him because He loves And He has proven His love. We have to remember His love. We can have confidence in Him because if He's at work in the life, in our lives, we will love other people. So, now, John states at the beginning these beautiful words. As a prologue, as kind of an entrance into what we're going to study for these next several weeks. He says, verse 1, "...that which was from the beginning..." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. John is uniquely qualified to give us this body of information because it was Him who stood at the foot of the cross and saw Jesus bleed to death and die of asphyxiation. It was Him who, at the foot of the cross, Jesus looks down upon and says, Would you please take care of my mom? I'm going to die. It was Him who, with Peter, runs to the tomb and sees it empty. And it was John who sat and feasted with the resurrected Christ. And knew He wasn't just a figment of the imagination. He was... There, in body, and he was eating, and they were eating together. John is uniquely qualified because he saw him. He heard him. He touched him. Not just pre-death, but after he was raised from the dead. And this man, John, who saw him, heard him, touched him, looked at him, he says this about him. Verse 1, That which was from the beginning. Do you know what that means? He had no beginning. This one that I saw and touched, I walked with, I saw him die, I saw him rise from the dead. He had no beginning and he has no end. This is how 
Jesus talks about Himself, and this is how His followers talked about Him, Jesus is, was, God. This is exactly what John writes at the beginning of the Gospel. He writes, John chapter 1, verse 1, when it says, In the beginning, you hear the phrase? This is how the whole Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has no beginning. And now John picks up on that and says, This Jesus, He was in the beginning. (laughs) He had no beginning. He has no end. And he says, John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God revealed Himself, made Himself known in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is fully God. We know that we're talking about Jesus when you read the Word, the Word, because in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And so when He says that which was from the beginning, and then He calls it at the end of verse 1, you can look in 1 John. He says, concerning the Word of life, He's putting those two things back together, just like He did in the Gospel He wrote. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is a person. That person is fully God, has no beginning, has no end. And in Him alone is eternal life. That's what He's saying. Jesus Christ is God Himself. Jesus said He was which is why the Jews wanted to kill Him, and His followers believed He was. Now here's what's interesting. We know it because the early church would sing songs stating this very thing. We have an early hymn, an early song, where the early church would sing, or maybe it was a poem, it was something they would regularly recite among one another, where part of where they got fuel, that's what songs do, they give us truth, they give us a sense of hope and fuel and clarity on who our great God is. And they would sing it. And you know what the content was? Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. You want to see it? It's in Philippians 2. So, Philippians chapter 2, it should be on the screen behind you if you don't know where it is in your Bible. If you want to, you can keep your finger in 1 John and flip there. But in Philippians chapter 2, you have at the beginning, you have a song, a hymn. I'm going to read verses 5, 6, and 7. The hymn begins around verse 6. And so I'll begin reading Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let me tell you about Jesus. Inserts this song they sing. Who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is where we've got to stop and you've got to understand what it means. Who though He was in the form of God. When you hear form, you hear something external. Outward appearance, right? If, if, you, if you're making a mold or a form of something, it's something that on its outward appearance looks like something else. That's actually not what this means. There's two different words in Greek that would tell you something about form. One talks about the external. The other word, which is used here, talks about something that's more at its essence. 
This word is like morphe, where we get metamorphosis or morphology, if you've ever heard those terms. It is something that describes essence, substance. It is saying here in this text, though He was in His essence completely God, fully in His substance completely God, fully in His characteristics completely God, this statement means Jesus is God. But then it goes on and it says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Which you might read, if you're reading maybe the English, you might think, Godness was out here, and He just decided that He couldn't grab onto it. That's not what this says. The text is saying, being completely God and having it in His hands, He loosened His grip, not of the substance of being God, but He leaves glory and He comes down to be with humanity. He chooses not to exercise His full power when He comes and dwells among people. It was an intentional loosing of the grip, but He didn't lose God. He's completely God. Both of these statements, they say that. And it's a song they used to sing all the time. Now, you know what's interesting about this is that these could be some of the most divisive words that could exist. In that day, the Roman world, they had a concept of multiple gods. But not one God. But you know who this would be hardest to understand and to grasp? This would be hardest for the Jews. Because Christianity, this song, the Bible, lays out that God is one. Three persons, one God. So we're not abandoning the one God. Not multiple gods. One God. But the Jews would say, no way, no how, this big, huge God ever becomes man. That's tainting what is beautiful and holy and right. And yet, you know what you got? By the end of Jesus' life, you have hundreds. And then after His death and resurrection, you have thousands of Jews who believe, singing this song, giving their lives for something they would have never considered earlier. And John here says, I've seen Him, I've touched Him, I've been with Him, I've heard Him. And I'm saying that He's God, He had no beginning and He has no end. Good night! What's going to flip your worldview like that? That man, to believe that when He's standing there, when you touched Him and saw Him and you walked with Him, His character has to be amazing. You walk with me, you're going to see a guy who fights really hard to love well and a guy who blows it a lot. When you walk with Jesus, He doesn't blow it. He's perfect. 
His character, His words, His demeanor, His actions, everything about Him was so shockingly beautiful that one who walked with Him and touched Him and saw Him even said, That's God. (laughs) When your whole worldview contradicted it prior to that. Friends, Jesus was and is remarkable. And He is fully God. And that's why John writes in 1 John 5.21, We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God. He is eternal life. In Him there is no darkness at all. And you might ask, now, thank you. Appreciate that, Sean. Hurt my head a little bit. But now tell me why it matters. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on the Incarnation, which is this glorious God coming down to be with humanity in Jesus as the God-man. And he said, it matters because if Jesus is really God, then we don't have to be so pessimistic about the possibility of change or redemption. How many of you feel like your life is too far gone? How many of you have excluded yourself from really ever changing, ever coming out of depression, ever putting away that addiction, ever loving your spouse or leading well? How many of you just written yourself off? If Jesus is God and He is, then He specializes in redemption. That's what He does. Have you ever had a situation that feels just so impossible you have no way of even thinking that there is a chance for redemption or a chance for something good to come out? Well, if Jesus is God, and He is, He's already proven it by the cross. He's proven His love, and He's proven His power over the hardest thing, which is sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is God, and nothing is beyond His ability to redeem. Nothing. And so the fact that He is God matters. If He's just a mere and good man, yeah, you might want to follow some teachings, but ultimately He's a liar because He called Himself God. He's not worth you following. But there's something else that matters if Jesus is God. There's a book by John Stott called Basic Christianity. And in that book, he states this. It's kind of a sober kind of understanding when you believe that Jesus is God. And he said this, no one has ever had a moderate response to Jesus. No middle of the road response. One, they either hated Him and they killed Him. Right? Two, they ran from Him and were terrified from him, of Him. He made the wind and the waves obey His voice. Or He cast demons out, threw them in pigs, and the pigs ran over the cliff, and they said, would you please leave our city? Or, they were so deeply in love with Him that they surrendered their entire lives for His glory. There is no just liking Jesus. And we have a culture filled with people who just like Him. Yeah, He's good. We use Him. 
We use Him for a comfort here, someone to blame here. We just like Him. He's a good teacher. He's a good crutch. No, He is God. Fully Savior. No moderate response allowed. All in. Or you'll end up hating Him, or you'll end up running from Him. And He says... I'm so glorious, I'm so God, and yet I come to you so that you would draw near to me, sinner, and find forgiveness. This is our Christ. He says He is God. His followers knew He was God. That's why John begins the letter like he was. That, like he did. That which was from the beginning, which I've seen, I've touched. And now in 1 John, we begin to see also, he says, concerning the word of life, He says, which was, verse 2, which was with the Father and was made manifest with us. He's talking about which has always been with the Father. He's throwing in on us now. You ready for this? He's throwing in on us Trinity talk. That God is three persons, one God. Three persons, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's articulating that this Jesus who was from the beginning has always been with the Father. And that the Trinity is a reality to delight in. Now, I'm not going to explain all the Trinity stuff with you, but clearly verse 2 assumes the Trinity. The end of verse 3 assumes the Trinity, which is, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's this fellowship which has been from the beginning. They've always been together. That's the Trinity. Now, you might say, okay, again... Is this really necessary or helpful? Well, Augustine says this regarding the Trinity. He says, If you don't believe in the Trinity, you have a deficient or defective God. You know why? Because you have a God who never loved anyone prior to creating. You have a God who never knew love prior to creating. So, then why would He create? He would create out of need, not out of overflow. Then, all of a sudden, we have to meet something in our God. Do you want a God who isn't fully sufficient in all that He is? All of a sudden, you have taken a God who has no needs, who is fully sufficient, who is fully satisfied in the Trinity, constantly relating to one another in perfect, harmonious love, and that love overflowing, and that's why He created. He wanted people to enjoy His fellowship. That's why He created you and I. If you don't have that view of God, then you have a God who uses you to figure out what love looks like. But that's not the God we have. We have a God who is fully sufficient in and of Himself. Fully God. Has no needs. And therefore is in full fellowship with Himself. And He created us to enjoy Him. It gives purpose to life. It gives significance. And it takes this view of God, which we want to make God this big, and it blows Him up beyond what our minds could even imagine. That's the kind of God you want to trust in. That's the kind of God who can deliver on all His promises. Not the one that creates out of need. This is why it matters. This is why John knew it mattered. And you know what else he says about Jesus? 
You know what else he says about Jesus? Is that Jesus just isn't fully God. He's fully man. This is what we see. This God, who was from the beginning, verse 2, the life was made manifest. He came to us. I saw Him with my eyes. I touched Him. He was human. And it's Him that we proclaim. Let's go back to the song they used to sing in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, he states... Now, just let me step back for a second. I know we have been swimming in the deep end of the pool for a little bit here. And you're tempted to maybe be overwhelmed. You weren't thinking this way before you came, (laughs) right? And your brain's probably hurting right now. I'm going to ask you to stick with it for just a little bit longer. Because ultimately, the more you know your God, the more real, substantial, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow type joy you can have. The more you know your Christ, the more you realize this is not just a charade we're doing. This is not just a religious exercise. Let's come to church. Let's check off the box. It's a relationship with a real living Christ who loves you and gave His life for you. It matters so much that you know why you're here. And you're here to know things that your brain wasn't necessarily planning on thinking on today. We need to be stretched. We need to hurt a little bit in order that we might find full, complete, even in the midst of pain, kind of joy. So, we need to know that Jesus was not only God, but Jesus was fully man. He was the God-man. And that's what John means when he says He came. He came to live among us. Now, I said, let's look at that song that they were singing in Philippians. In Philippians, it says this, who though He was in the form of God, it says in the NIV, though being very nature God. I think that's a good translation. Being the very nature God, He did not count equality with God a thing thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now the way people sometimes want to read this is like a sequence. He was God, He let go of God. Now He's a servant and He's fully man. That's not how this reads. This word was in the form of God. It actually is being in the form of God. He did this. So it's not as if He was God and then He let go of God to do these other things. He's always God and then He added on being a servant and becoming a man. He's not letting go of His godness. He is becoming man. Living and dwelling among us. He was made manifest to us. So the text is saying, staying God, He let go of the glory that was His in heaven and He chooses to not exercise His power in order that He might come as a servant to humanity and lay His life down for them because they proved that they couldn't save themselves. Do you know that? Let's just be really clear right now. You and I have all proved, this world has proven, we cannot save ourselves. And I just want to deliver you from the burden of that journey. So many people will spend their entire lives trying to save themselves. 
You erect it through false saviors. Give me a good job. Give me some money. If I just had this car, I'd be happy. If I just had this relationship, I'd be happy. If I just had these kids, I'd be good. If this one thing would be fixed, I'd be fine. All of these are secondary. And they're false saviors. Jesus having to come down to earth as fully God and fully man proved we couldn't save ourselves. And so He came to do it for us. He stood in our place. He took the death that we deserved. First, Timothy, or First John chapter 2 says He was actually the propitiation. There's your fancy word we'll talk about in a few weeks. But it means He took the wrath that you and my sin deserved. We're here. Wrath should be poured out. Justice should slaughter us because of our sin. From the smallest lie to the most grotesque sin that could be out there. We deserve the full, unfiltered wrath of God. And God knew it. And instead of crushing us, He sends His Son to stand in between us. Stand in our place. He put the wrath upon His Son so that then if we trust in His Son, we're united to the Son and we have full access to Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ to God forever. And our full joy is possible by being in Him. Friends, salvation comes just by saying, I can't save myself. I need Christ. And He stood in my place that I might be made new and have hope again. So if you're not a believer today, I encourage you. I encourage you. Today, turn from the false saviors. Turn from the addictions. Turn from the, the love of money. And run after a Christ who will deliver on His promises. And when you fail Him, He won't beat you down like those other things. He died for you. That's the cross. That's the resurrection. That's our glorious Savior. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And John says several times in here, he says in verse 1, we've seen Him with our eyes, we've looked upon Him. Verse 2, he says, we have seen Him, we testify to Him, and now we proclaim Him. He's just stamping authenticity on something that people who haven't seen Him might struggle to believe. Have you ever been there before? Somebody tell you something that seems kind of unbelievable? Well, I'm not a golfer, okay? Golfing mocks me. When I go to golf, which I I rarely ever do, I can't afford it, and I'm just horrible at it, so why go and make a fool of myself all the time, right? But sometimes people ask me to go, and I want to be with them, so I go, and... I'm just really bad at it. I used to play, actually, tennis, though. I played tennis in college. And my daddy, when he taught me at age 13, we started with a tennis racket and a tennis ball. That's a good place to start, I thought. In my living room. Tennis racket head is this big. Tennis ball about this big. And he just started with drop the ball here and just try to keep it going. How many times can you keep it going? Well, of course, the first time I did that, the ball went... Well, you know, Dad was ducking because it was going everywhere. I, had, I wasn't able to do it very well. And then I heard, I got a little better at it over time. Then I heard that golfers, some golfers can take a golf ball, you know, golf ball, smaller than a tennis ball. And they can take their golf club head, small club head, and they can do this with it and bounce a golf ball. I said, no, you can't. Because, you know, I'm the kind of guy who, you know, winds up, swings, and the ball's still there. So, it's like, okay, if, if the ball's not moving and I can't hit it, let alone, you know, it's moving now all over the place. And so, I was told Tiger Woods could take the ball and bounce it like this, and he could go behind his back and bounce it, 
and he could put it between his legs, and then he was still bouncing the ball. It hasn't stopped bouncing. And then he bounces it up in midair and hits it in midair, and it goes straight. I said, liar. <laughs> I don't think that's true. And then I found this video on YouTube. <laughs> He switched hands. See, that's just showing off. That's just stupid silly. This is what John is seeking to do. He's seeking to say, this doesn't just happen in a bubble and it's not a story that was made up. He's seeking to say, I saw him. I saw him die. I saw him rise from the dead. I ate with him. And hundreds of people did that. Jesus Christ is who He says He is. Fully God. I'm going to call Him fully God because that's who He is. He's fully man. I saw Him. I touched Him. And He's worthy of us giving our lives to. Now, why might it matter that Jesus, we know Jesus as fully God and fully man? Why might that matter? Well, ultimately, because some people in their religious understanding think physical things are evil and wrong. So, the more religious or spiritual you get, the more you try to... Stay out of the world. You can't enjoy like creation or you can't enjoy these things as much because life is about being spiritual. You even have whole groups that kind of become you know, ascetics and they, go, they become monk-ish and they go out and they just try to avoid the world because spiritual is good, physical is bad. And then you have those who don't follow Jesus and they have no hope when it comes to Spiritual things, so everything is about the physical. Whatever appetite they have, they give into it because life is all about the physical. Christianity doesn't allow those things. It brings them both together to say our God values the physical. He created us physically. He promises that when He returns again, He'll bring a new heavens and a new earth. And it will be earthy. Things we can touch, rivers to see. People to be around. It won't just be spiritual. It'll be physical. New heavens and new earth. The two holidays that we celebrate the most as Christians are Christmas and Easter, right? Why? Because they highlight the value of the physical world to us. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to us. That's Christmas. God Himself dwelling among us. That's the incarnation. What about Easter? Jesus' life was taken from Him and He redeemed a new body. It's physical. He didn't come back as just a floating head. He was a body, a resurrected body, like every single follower of Jesus will be. In Christianity, physical and spiritual go together. This is why work matters. When Hunter shared his testimony, this is why your work matters. You are working as a part of showing off a God who values the world around Him. A God who values order. A God who values creation. A God who values design. A God who values all the different... When sick people become healed through medicine, He values these things. 
What you're doing is contributing to showing off God and bringing order just in its physical nature, let alone the spiritual aspect that you get to share the love of Jesus with co-workers or things like that. Christianity brings both together, the spiritual and the physical, into this beautiful mixture because Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. And we are to delight in a relationship with Him that's lived out in this physical world as we seek to care for those in need and live lives of tangible love. So, if Jesus is really this God-man, the other two points are almost mere paragraphs. Because if He really is all that, then it makes total sense why John writes this to say, you want to be in fellowship with that God. You want to be in fellowship with Him. If He's that glorious, if He has been seen, if He's been resurrected and every word of His has proven true, His promises are for you, then you want to be in fellowship with Him. That's verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we now proclaim to you also, church, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus. When you say, I trust in Jesus Christ, you are brought not only into harmony with God, but you are brought into unity with all those who profess faith in Jesus. You see that in the text? So that you may have fellowship with us, the church, that's all those who trust in Jesus, which stems from the second thing, because indeed our fellowship is already with the Father and with the Son. Because we have been brought near to God, we are united together. We have fellowship in Christ with one another. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might just forgive our sins and make us not feel so guilty. Just wipe sin away so that we might have a clearer mind. You're forgiven if you trust in Jesus. Not just so you can feel better about yourself, but so that you can draw near to the one you were created to be near. So that you might, sinner over here, be brought to God. That is why we've been created. To have fellowship with God. So if He's as glorious as He says He is, we were created to be in fellowship with God, not just as individual islands, but together for all those who are faith in Jesus. That's the church. Our fellowship with Him means we have a unity across ethnic, socioeconomic, all backgrounds. We have a unity that is ours in Christ. And if we are in Him, then we may have joy and have it to the full. And that's what he says in verse 4. And we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That your joy may be complete. Jesus says this in John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Do you serve a disgruntled Savior? Do you serve a sour-faced Savior? Do you serve a Savior who seems to be indifferent to your needs or to your concerns? That's not the Savior of the Bible. Jesus Christ says, I am fully joy, fully happy, fully 
non-frustrated. I am fully competent to do all things. He says He rejoices when sinners come to Him. That's our God. And He says, now I want my joy. I want it to be yours. I want it to be yours. What is His joy? It's a joy that has perfect fellowship with God and then is lived out in lives of love for others. First John is going to say, if you have fellowship with God, your life will be a life of love and you will continue to live it. And joy will continue to grow and be fuller and fuller. Our Savior is a happy one. And therefore, He says, I just want my joy to be in you. Do you know that means that he's actually saying he's working for that right now? Right now, he's working that your joy would be in him. And so, friends, I pray that you see our great God. That now you long to be with him, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. And that as you press deeper and deeper into him, and as you seek to make him known, your joy will be full and complete. Let me pray. Father, this is what we ask for. We ask for a joy that was like Jesus's, Because He was also called a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. We thank You that our Savior is able to, as man, sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He understands what it means to be betrayed. He understands what it means to be mocked, to be in pain. And yet He still can be characterized by joy and hope because He knows that He is in Your will and that You are doing good. And so, Father, I ask, I ask for everyone in this room for it to begin, the lights to click on as we've been able to see Jesus maybe a little clearer than we have maybe before, that, God, our joy would be consistent in You even through the midst of pain. Because we have hope that You're not leaving us, that You aren't doing bad to us, that You are building our character, You are helping us know how to love, You are shaping us and making us more like Your Son. And so, Father, give that joy, the joy of Jesus, to us, we pray, that we might share that joy with a lost world that doesn't have that hope. And so now we ask that You would move and meet with us as we take the Lord's Supper together. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. With these last few minutes, we're just going to take time. It's basically a prayer time. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's a 